zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Hardly Working, released April 3rd, 1981. It was written by Michael Janover and Jerry Lewis, based on a story by Janover, directed by Jerry Lewis, and released by 20th Century Fox. Valerie Perrine was in talks to star, either as Bo's sister or girlfriend, but the star of Can't Stop the Music had the good sense to walk away from this one. Florida promoter Joseph Ford Proctor discovered Michael Janover's script and reached out to Jerry Lewis, who agreed to direct and star after doing a quick rewrite of his own. Florida promoter? He's, like, he's he promotes, from Florida, oh, and he's a promoter at he clubs. he promotes Florida. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, Florida needs some help. <laughs> You're now... St- Senior Florida, I promoted oh, you. I thought it was just like, everybody, Florida's great. You <laughs> Have you come guys to been here? Oh, my Do God. Do you like palm trees? <laughs> oh, they got them there, too. Okay, well, How I'm sure gators? we got something. <laughs> you like being underwater in 50 years? Come to Florida. Proctor, the film's producer and half-owner, had never produced a film before, but managed to con nine local investors to deposit between $100,000 and $750,000 toward the film's $3 million budget. He also negotiated 28 different promotional tie-ins that must have offset the entire budget of the film before Ticket 1 was ever sold. And then he pocketed it all because none of that money shows up on the film. I was going to say- He did. Was there promotional tie-ins? I don't remember seeing. Oh, any. there's there's, yeah, there's four huge instances of product placement. I in guess this movie. there's like 20 minutes of Benny Hanna, but <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. You know, like people keep asking for Seven Ups. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, the Budweiser one. I forgot about yeah. that. Okay. All right. All right. All right. To give you an idea of how disconnected Jerry Lewis was with reality at the time. During production, Lewis and Proctor were actively working toward a sequel to Hardly Working, tentatively titled Hardly Working Attacks Star Wars, with a $10 million budget. What? That He thought that they would get away with that title. Hardly Working Attacks Star Wars. What does that even mean? Star Wars is big right now. Let's call it Attacks Star Wars. <laughs> That's what it means. Okay. This was the plan right up until halfway through the production when, as Richard predicted, Proctor's Gold Coast Productions went suddenly bankrupt and he left the project, allegedly taking with him a million dollars of the film's budget. (laughs) The film stopped down for six months in the middle of 1980 and Jerry Lewis declared personal bankruptcy. Florida Governor Robert Graham put the production in touch with James J. McNamara, who signed on to produce in Proctor's absence and raised the final million to finish the film. Hardly Working opened first in Germany because it had been a decade since the last release of a Jerry Lewis film, Which Way to the Front, and the producers wanted proof of concept that Lewis was still a moneymaker. Naturally, they would choose Europe, where Lewis has always been exceptionally popular. I don't understand, though, because you've already spent the money and made the film. You might as well release it. They didn't have a distributor yet. Okay. So they were trying to prove that it was worth the money. Three weeks in Germany had more than earned the film's budget in box office, and they made $4 million in three weeks in Germany. 
Lewis cut 22 minutes from the European cut for the domestic release. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, leave that on the they floor, please. They sat through more of this movie yeah. and liked it. <laughs> Every studio turned down the distribution deal until 20th Century Fox was offered a test screening at half price because the producers are like, we'll split it with you. Just, you got to see this film in front of an audience. And it did gangbusters for the test screening. Really? So Fox bought it. It finished its theatrical run with a box office take of $24 million meaning it paid for itself eight times over, not including foreign markets. Another screenwriter, John Beck, claimed to have written the film in 77 and presented it to Lewis, who promised him 100000 and a producer credit, but I could not find the results of that suit. The film opens with a quick montage of Jerry Lewis's work back when he was considered funny. If you're not familiar, Jerry Lewis was the first man to ever learn how to cross his eyes, or at least that's what I'm assuming, because that seems to be the bulk of his material. So it can't have been something that everybody knew how to do. Jerry Lewis seems like the epitome of you had to be there because I can't think of any other comedian <laughs> whose work ages as poorly. I was so confused by this montage. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, is this the film? Why does this look like stuff he's They expected done? people to not remember who Jerry Lewis was because there's, you know, it's been 10 years. So oh, they were so like, this was like a previously on Jerry yeah, Lewis. Exactly. <laughs> Last week on Jerry Lewis. Remember Jerry Lewis? He's back in pog form. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting the yeah. The film starts with the erection of a circus tent. We see a quick montage of the functioning circus culminating in a clown show. Children in the audience ask their mother Claire which clown is their uncle Bo Hooper and she tells them to wait. Jerry Lewis as Bo walks on stage and pulls things out of a suitcase for a while. A laugh track lets us know which things are funny. At the end he pulls out a little person in clown makeup played by Billy Barty. For no reason, because he doesn't say anything. You have to pay him more. Yeah. None of this is funny. Like, no. I mean... The I joke could, is that, I oh, these things that, don't fit in the suitcase. Well, I could say that about the whole film, but, like, his clown performance, which you think should be the most over-the-top hilarious right. thing he does of the film, is also not funny. He's And, and, and like, it almost seems like he's a sad clown. Yeah, he doesn't even have to be wearing a <laughs> clown costume because he's not doing anything clowny. He might as well be just an angry 55 year old man taking things out of a suitcase that don't fit in the suitcase backstage after the show the performers learn that the circus is being shut down surprise surprise because the bank won't lend them money anymore we see Bo looking in a mirror and smearing his clown makeup wiping away tears incredibly this is lewis's first film back to work in eight years after the disastrous the day the clown cried why he would decide to come back playing a clown is unfathomable he, but that he wanted movie, to be redeemed as a clown. But that movie never actually made it to theaters because it was that bad. We cut to the household of Bo's sister, Claire, who's arguing with her husband, Robert, about letting Bo stay here until he can find work. He doesn't want a clown in his house, but she wins the debate. Look, he is my brother. He is in trouble. He is staying here, and that's fine. And I guess that settles that. Yay! Yay! The child acting stays exactly that good for the whole rest of the film. Because all Jerry Lewis knows about is funny faces, everyone in the scene is contorting themselves to extreme exaggerations of whatever emotion they're expected to convey. The doorbell rings. When Claire opens the door for him, Bo stumbles in with broken glasses and spits a mouthful of chiclets on the floor, pretending that the door hit him in the face, but quickly admits it was a joke. Rather than speaking in unison, the kids insist on reciting the same lines one after another throughout the film. Oh, Bo. Hi, Uncle Bo. We're sure glad you're here. Hi, Uncle 
we're sure glad you're here. Robert offers to make Bo a drink, and the kids are rushed off to do homework. I'll see you later, troops, okay? Okay, Uncle Bo, see you later. Okay, Uncle Bo, see you later. See you later, Mom. See you later, Mom. See you later, Dad. See you later, Dad. See you later, Uncle Bo. See you later, Uncle Bo. Later! This is the level of comedy that only Jerry Lewis can bring to a nationwide theatrical release. Bo tells Claire that it's too late in the season to find work with another circus, but he'll get a job tomorrow. Claire offers to rent him a car to make the job hunt easier, and her husband thinks she's being ridiculous. I would think, though, that he, of all people, would want Bo to find a job right away. Right? Don't you want him to have a car? You want him to walk to interviews? That night, one of the children, Michelle, tells Bo that her dad is harmless and doesn't mean the mean things that he says, and Bo tells her that he's known her dad a while and he doesn't take it personally. Michelle also asks if she could be a clown someday, and he says she can do anything she puts her mind to. One day you might even be president. Maybe I'll be both. Why not? It's a tradition. So this is one of, like, two or three versions of the character of Bo that will exist in the movie. There's the solemn, stern, serious, I'm a real person and a real human being, and this is how I talk. And then there's the Zany Bo. Andy Dick. Uh, You know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's... and, and then and he turns on a dime every time. Yeah, and but only when he's at home. Only yes. when he's at home is he this person. Yep, that's true. It's like all the stuff, all these scenes were shot in one day, and he hadn't done any of the other scenes yet in the movie, so he didn't know how he was going to act in those other scenes. Well, it could be before and after six-month break, too. That's true. The next day, Bo pulls up to a gas station and removes their help-wanted sign, What he leaves up, though, are about a dozen enormous 7-Up signs all over the building. He finds the station manager, who is just finishing piling a pyramid of empty cans in the office, when he is startled by Bo and knocks the tower over. Presumably Jerry Lewis had just caught the jerk in theaters the day he wrote this scene, and assumed that stacks of cans are inherently funny. The TV campaign for this film's release refers to Jerry Lewis as the original jerk, as if to imply that Steve Martin was ripping him off. Yeah, (laughs) uh, I was... was gonna bring that up exactly yeah uh this plays into the attacks star wars right all the more that he's just like why am i not famous anymore i'm gonna show all these people that they're dumb the guy is furious with Bo and blames him for the mess but Bo explains over again what just happened in the scene that we watched to remind us that the manager knocked the cans over himself Bo tells the guy to keep looking for help if that's the way he feels but the man stops him on his way out and compliments his spirit before giving him the job right there on the spot Later, we see Bo moving around the sales floor in coveralls, slapping rags at boxes of product. He tells the boss that he's dusting, but the boss reprimands Bo because he likes the dust. I'm not clear which of these characters is supposed to be the straight man in this bit. The boss orders Bo outside to help a customer that just arrived. The woman in the car asks for a fill-up and directions to a cigarette machine. He points her around the back and opens the door for her to exit the car. She smiles wide and looks from his crotch to his face three times flirtatiously as she gets out of the car. For reference, Lewis is 54, heavyset, and wearing filthy coveralls. After the woman leaves to get cigarettes, Lewis realizes that the pump she's pulled up to is out of order, and the next pump down won't reach. He uses a paper towel core to complete the pipeline. The woman returns and asks for him to check her oil, and he tells her to pop the hood while standing over it, so it hits him in the face, but then suddenly in the reverse angle, the hood is down again. He tells her that she has eight or nine quarts of oil, and we see the woman mouth the words as if to repeat them to him, 
I can't tell if they just forgot to put in her ADR, but she's clearly just saying what he just said over again. A lot of the jokes in this film seem to be people repeating a thing that someone else said. Uh, yeah, and, and also he, everyone just breaks yeah. and is just laughing, and I don't know if that's supposed to be the characters laughing or just the actors laughing. I, I think for her in particular, that's supposed to be her character because for some reason she finds him really funny. They just hmm. want to make sure that we know this isn't an uncomfortable situation. That we can this. laugh with them because everyone thinks it's funny. Yeah. The kid in the passenger seat says that he should check the tire pressure and Bo hooks it up to a pump. She asks him to check the water and he burns his hand on the steam. He puts a hose in to refill the water when the kid points out that the gas is overflowing. Bo hands the water hose to the woman driving and unplugs the gas pump. Bo's boss watches all of this from the sidelines. Now the car is gushing water from under the hood for some reason. Bo unplugs the air pump from the tire and apologizes to the woman, admitting that it's his first day on the job, when the overinflated tire explodes. I'm really very sorry. I know excuses don't mean a heck of a lot, but this is my first day on the job. And the kid in the passenger seat makes a joke. <laughs> Where are you working tomorrow? Somehow, the child and adult woman driver have traded seats in the blast. <laughs> I don't get this. Like, she's in the passenger seat with her legs up, and the kid is leaning all the way out the driver's side window. But everyone is covered with dirt and dust, and the customers are both laughing heartily at all the damage he's done to their car. Inside, the boss walks back over to the empty can display and tries several times to knock it over, but it takes like six swings. They were just too lazy to reset and rebuild the pile, so he just keeps swatting at it until finally the whole thing collapses. And why? I don't know. Just because, oh my gosh, can you believe this this new employee I got? Back at Claire's home, she's on the phone with another sister of Bo's named Grace. She's urging Grace to put in a good word with her husband, Barney, to get Bo another job. Instead of wasting time on another full scene, this time we cut right to the exterior of a glass and mirror factory where mass shattering can be heard. Bo steps out the door and gets in the passenger seat of a car to be fired and dropped off by another brother-in-law. We see Claire on the phone again, promising to deliver Bo to a bartender job interview at 7 p.m. tonight. We cut to the job where Bo cleans glasses and cuts limes while presumably nude dancers perform on the bar top in front of him. Predictably, he spills a lot, distracted by the women, and eventually goes full Jerry Lewis with the cross eyes and the laven and grabs a dancer around the legs before he is tossed out of the building. Claire speaks in Japanese on the phone with someone and congratulates them on winning a pachinko championship. She mentions Bo needing a job, and we cut to a Benihana-style restaurant where, you guessed it, Jerry Lewis shows up with his hilarious Asian-American accent coke bottle glasses and enormous prosthetic teeth and browned skin Ugh. by comparison this costume makes peter sellers as fu manchu last year look sensitive and nuanced <laughs> you could probably guess the whole routine he accidentally cuts himself with a knife i think he's telling some jokes but his fake teeth are preventing anything intelligible from being heard and suddenly three customers are so upset about something that they begin to corner him and he threatens them with karate moves. 
One of the angry customers almost looks like the late Sam Lloyd from Scrubs, but he was way too young at the time to be playing this character. But what happened at the end of this scene? <laughs> like, I, I, it looks like they're eating him against I the corner know. of the room. There is a point where he's putting excessive amounts of bean sprouts on the on the yeah. table, and I'm like, is that a thing? Is that a is that a cliche about Benihana? I don't know. I don't know what is happening in this scene. We cut again to Claire on the phone, pitching for Bo to work in some kind of a store. Like, an, I guess it's an antique store. I don't know what this place is. They have yeah, a lot of candles. I think it's antiques. They have mirrors and trinkets and candles. He tries to light a cigarette with one of the candles, but it magically goes out before it reaches the cigarette each time because we can see him taking yeah, his finger off the button at yes, the bottom of the candle. Yes, there's a button yeah. on the bottom, and his hand is clearly moving every time this flame comes up. But even if it wasn't doing that, what would be the explanation for this candle going out? Because it's funny. Is know. it funny? I don't like, know. Guys, 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 I'm going to I'm gonna try to light my cigarette on this candle, but every time I try to do it, it goes out. And then when I come back, it lights itself. This would right? be funny if it was someone else doing it to him or if it was him doing it to someone else. Or if there were ghosts in this, as part of the story. Pulling but we're a prank watching on him. a guy prank himself yeah. over and over again. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like it's a throwback to like, like a like a chaplain type thing where yeah they're mis- mistakenly every time I try to go and do like put my hat down it it goes somewhere else you know like it, it seems but he's like just that. not that capable but of he, a physical act not yeah it's not slapstick he's literally just raising and lowering a candle yeah a customer comes in looking for a gift and he directs her to a mirror mounted on the wall across the store is it a mirror is it, I, I mean it it's very reflective and circular uh, okay. but it's not a mirror but. For the intents and purposes of the beginning of this joke, it's a mirror. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be a mirror or if it was supposed to just be a decorative porthole. I think it's supposed to look like a mirror just because it's so shiny and reflective. Okay. Like, if, if it, I think it is just a porthole, but they put a mirror on the back of it. Because she says she wants to buy something for her husband's boat. Right. And so he goes over to it and he says, how about this? And she says, how much is it? And he says, oh, I don't know. So he starts to unscrew it from the wall, assuming the price will be written on the back. But when he takes it off the wall, he and the customer are hit with fire hose strength water blasting from a hose connected to the wall in this something store. This makes no sense. So far, this job makes the least sense by far. I can't tell what the merchandise here has in common. I don't get the joke about the candle going out. And there is no explained reason for a hose pointed at the back of this mirror porthole. on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> why Why is there a porthole that blasts water into this room? I... The only thing that I found interesting about this scene, no, not not interesting is a bad choice of words, but after they get both get soaked, she like leans into him and he cradles her like like to console like they've her. They've both been through this terrible thing together. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I, I don't know what this is happening. Grasping at straws here, Richard. <laughs> Around this point in the film, I got really worried that literally the entire movie would just be Jerry Lewis is bad at his job over and over and over again, and none of the sketches would be longer than like two minutes <laughs> <laughs> now i would prefer that yeah over dinner that night robert complains about all the jobs Bo has lost so far i'm not sure what he could possibly be suggesting other than stop trying to get a job and live here for free claire asks Bo what he wants to be i want what i never realized i wanted to be somebody not just anybody but somebody with a direction and a purpose for as long as I can remember, I thought I was satisfied with this job, that job, any job, as long as I had three squares a day and a place to put my head. 
But I think it's about time I dug some roots for myself with a steady job and steady money. For some reason, Claire is satisfied by this answer instead of repeating the question so she can help him find a job that he actually wants. I think he just wants to go to jail based on that description. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three, three hots and a cot is what he's looking for. Yeah. Robert gets on the phone later to complain to an acquaintance named Ted. He wants to formulate a plan to get Bo out of his house for good. The next morning, Robert tells Bo that he's hooked him up with a job at the post office. The previous scene makes it look like oh, I have this terrible prank plan that's going to ruin his life and get yeah. him out. And it's like, no, it's it's just a nice favor you're doing him. Yeah. But they make it look so, like... Sinister? Yeah. It's like, what, what is the problem with this? Well, I think what we're not realizing, and it's supposed to become apparent, is that this is an undesirable posting at the post office because of I the... I guess. Because the, the guy who leads the section is kind of militant about it. But all of his jobs have been shitty so far. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, like, I don't think that this job is that terrible and the no. guy that runs it isn't even being that horrible. Yeah. So I, if that is the joke that he's giving him a really bad posting at the post office. Then it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. Robert tells him that they don't fire postal workers unless they're trying to get fired. Bo promises he won't screw up anymore before dumping a full pitcher of milk in Robert's lap. Why was there just a giant pitcher of milk on the table? Because so it would they be could funny. dump it in the guy's lap. Bo Hooper shows up for an interview and waits a couple minutes for the interviewer to clean his glasses and then sneezes on them so the guy has to start over. Unfortunately, Lewis doesn't have the balls to sneeze on them again and have the guy clean them a third time. <laughs> he tells Bo to take a test in room 213. Bo asks where to take the test and the guy says room 213 again, get it? Because You repeat things, they're funny. Yeah, yeah. that's twice. It's a rule of threes. <laughs> not in this movie nope. this is back when it was the still rule the rule of, of twos <laughs> later as the man grades his test Bo pours a glass of water but forgets how to drink out of a glass and instead dumps the pitcher on the guy grading his test that's funny right the guy tells him that he passed the test <laughs> it's like what we've made it clear that this guy can't drink water Yeah. how did he pass this test uh, and then Bo tries to leave but he opens a closet instead of the door, and so a bunch of stuff falls out. So there's a, there's a lot of times where the crap that happens that get people mad in this movie aren't his fault. Mm -hmm. Where Like he described the cans falling over and this closet being overpacked and stuff just falling out. Like he didn't do any of this stuff. Right. It's just annoying. But it made a loud sound, so it's automatically his fault. Then Bo tears the proper exit door out of the door frame and walks out because it's not funny enough to just walk through a door and every beat has to be a joke. And so he tears the entire door out of the frame. He calls Claire to tell her that he starts the post office job in two weeks. And so he returned the car that she rented to pay for one himself. She, she paid to rent a car for him and he returned it when he got a job that doesn't start for two weeks. But then he went out and rented a car himself, he says. Don't worry, we still get to see Bo suck at jobs because in the ensuing two weeks, he's going to take odd jobs to afford the new rental car that he doesn't need because he's not job hunting anymore. On a tennis court, he reads a newspaper until suddenly the woman and son from the gas station approach him. Jim! I'm sorry. Why are you sorry? Well, I messed you up. I messed up your car. I messed up your kid. He was messed up a long time ago. <laughs> she apologizes for getting him fired 
and then he tells her that he works for the post office now and she looks super disappointed all of a sudden but that's not exactly how the exchange went the exchange went oh i have a really good job now and they talk for a little while and he's like oh i'm I, i'm gonna be working at the post office and then she looks super disappointed and i was just like oh is she expecting him to actually have a good job and yeah. she thinks this is a super shitty job and it took me like another two-thirds of the movie to realize why, <laughs> why she's, she's disappointed here yeah her son impatiently drags her away from the conversation. Bo offers to show them his car, but the kid says he doesn't give a shit, so he just walks them to their car. The woman tells him that her name is Millie, and she runs over his foot when they leave, so we get a big cartoon flattened foot on the ground. <laughs> this is the only joke like this in the whole movie. Yep. We cut to a disco where Bo has apparently been doing a decent job as a DJ. He is relieved of the turntables by a fellow employee and moves to the dance floor where he loosens his tie and cuffs and sits to watch people dance. We get a blurry flashback transition to Bo standing in the same place but dressed in full-on Saturday Night Fever costume, and he can't manage to fake any of Travolta's dancing. Well, yeah, this this was confusing to me, because I'm like, okay, so this is his fantasy of what is actually happening. Shouldn't he be dancing well? But he's, he's dancing, not. yeah. He's dancing like an idiot. But again, this is the situation where Jerry Lewis is like, all right, I've been out of the game for a decade. I'm going to take everything that was cool in the 70s and show that I'm cooler than all that stuff. And so then he goes to this thing, but they, don't, they didn't even bother to swap him out for a stunt dancer. So he steals a girl from someone on his way to the middle of the dance floor, and they just spin for a while. <laughs> they just spin around. And it's, it's, I mean, it's hardcore disco. I yeah. mean, I feel mm-hmm. like it was dated by 81. And then we cut back to the the DJ clothes. He's not wearing Saturday Night Fever, and he's doing the exact same dance. He's not any cooler or less cool in the middle of the floor. And then his boss walks up and fires him for it. It's like he was relieved of duty by the other guy. He's practically on a break right now, and you fired him for what? Spinning on the dance floor? Like he fit in with the terrible dancing everyone else was doing. We cut to an alarm blaring in Bo's room at night. It waits for him to doze off again before ringing each time until Bo tucks it into the drawer of his nightstand. Bo reports for work at the post office. His boss asks him to close the office door so they can chat, and he starts to close it, but then instead sweeps all of his boss's paperwork to the floor. The boss reminds him to close the door. A full box of Dunkin' Donuts is sitting on the boss's desk, and Jerry rotates the box to make sure the camera can read the brand name. (laughs) He takes a bite out of a donut and then puts it back and eats another one whole, so the answers to his boss's next couple questions are completely unintelligible. The boss offers him a small cup to wash the donut out of his mouth and is astonished when Jerry Lewis is able to drink the whole small cup of whatever it is. Like It's like one of those cups that the dentist tells you to sip and then spit <laughs> yeah. out. It's nothing. It was exactly one mouthful of beverage. They say more words in this scene, but honestly, no information is conveyed by them. Bo is partnered with someone named Steve. Steve tells Bo to grab a satchel to carry envelopes in, and the one Bo chooses is on the floor under a mail cart, hooked on the wheel. He tips the cart by picking it up and then knocks over a full shelf of mail while trying to catch himself. They act like the bigger problem is the mail from the cart, but it's just a mixed pile of mail that would take a couple minutes to put back in the cart. It wasn't sorted or anything. It's literally just a giant cart full of envelopes. The girl who's been flirting with Bo all over town shows up to pick up her dad from the post office, and it's Bo's boss, of course. She tells him that she has a date with a nice guy tonight, but she won't say who because she doesn't want to give away that he works here. Her dad was just complaining about a new guy giving him trouble. At home that night, 
Bo tries to call the girl and gets in an argument with her answering machine. He tells it that he doesn't want to leave a message with a machine, and the voice of the machine accuses him of being bigoted against machines. He hangs up, but when he retrieves the phone, the machine is still telling him all the amazing things technology has accomplished, and he tries to strangle the phone by twisting the cord in knots. The voice on the other end contorts until he hangs up again. We cut to Bo and Steve on their route. Bo is bad at mailmanning for a while. They try to deliver a pair of rabbits, but nobody answers, so they stash them back in the truck. He gets lost and asks a beautiful cross-eyed woman for directions. We cut to Bo on a date with the girl. I should mention that the cross-eyed woman is Jerry Lewis, yeah. just as a woman. Yeah, that, and the, and then who walks weird Yeah, as, as, as they enter the exit the scene. These scenes are significantly longer than the descriptions of them, but n- nothing really happens in them, but right. they go on forever. I mean, that Benny Hanna scene was like 10 minutes long, and then this, this one is several minutes of him talking to himself and it's just obnoxious but you can uh you can basically anytime i end a sentence you can picture jerry lewis kind of crossing his eyes and shaking his head like he can't believe what just happened even if it's something as simple as you know i i opened a door but yeah he's he's playing this weird woman with this weird accent and And he's asking her where registration is is are they enormous breasts i mean they're completely covered so it's not like it's you know supposed to be gratuitous nudity yeah. or something like that but like they're enormous and she's he asks for directions to registration and she says she's pretending that he thinks he's registering to vote and that's the that's it's, it it's funny because because i i guess we cut to Bo on a date with the girl as they're led to their table Bo drags his date's shawl over the head of a heavyset female customer he removes it painfully slowly as if she were a sleeping guard dog and he's trying not to wake her but the lady just sits there and lets him slowly drag the cloth across her face she even eats while he does it plugging a fork full of food into her mouth (laughs) as often as it is visible once he gets the shawl off he gets his ring caught in the mesh of her outfit and he tells her my ring is caught in your mesh my ring is caught in your mesh why are you why are you telling her just get it out is this her job to fix that moment ends with the sentiment that we all have yeah she just says go away yeah (laughs) when he finally joins his date at the table the waiter offers them menus and Bo says they'd prefer something more substantial would you care for a menu sir oh no Uh, we'd rather have something more substantial we're really very hungry good our menus are out of season anyway hey i'm only kidding so was i yeah, of course he was kidding. Yeah. I, this was the only chuckle that I had in the entire film. And it was the waiter's And it was joke. the waiter's line that made me laugh. His date tries her best to pronounce every syllable of her dialogue with only teeth showing. Oh, you're such fun to be with. The waiter brings back enormous menus. Get it? <laughs> That's the joke. Back on his route, Bo delivers a package to the Goodyear blimp in the middle of a field. He can't find anybody to deliver to. But he notices that the controls are unmanned, and so we cut to his boss's office, where he's being informed that Bo has stolen the Goodyear blimp. I really wanted to cut back to the Hindenburg crashing, but instead we see the Goodyear blimp taking off and just landing gently in the same park. Yep, like yeah, perfectly well, they're, they're planned not gonna landing. Crash it. Right. So literally, he did nothing. He he did. He went once around the block with it, and then he brought it right back down. Well, 
And I don't know what this is supposed to tell us that he's terrible at everything, but he's really good at flying blimps. Right. But like most of the like things that happen to him are like klutzy things that happen yeah. to him. Like that's, that's why I wanted it to be oh the humanity. Yeah, but this was just a poor choice on his part to steal a blimp. Like I really though this is the first thing that I sympathized with him because if I were on the Goodyear blimp alone. And it was like ready to go, and I you saw the controls. Off. I would go <laughs> because I, for some reason, in my head, they are inherently difficult to to crash because they're just like a giant airbag. Mm-hmm. And then, but when he lands, there's police and a big commotion, right? But they don't do anything. There's no consequences. Yeah. there's no consequences for stealing a blimp. Yeah. Despite a police presence when he lands, Bo is allowed to stroll uninterrupted back to his mail truck and just leave back to the post office. He pulls up to a house with another package and the homeowner offers him a drink for his troubles. When he orders a beer, she whistles and the fucking Budweiser Clydesdales pull up to the house and toss him a case of beer. That's funny because it's a commercial for Budweiser in the middle of a movie. I was so confused at this moment. Like, why did this just happen? And yeah. I guess the it makes more sense now that you say that they had all this product placement that they had to put in there. But it just, it's so nonsensical that it's, it's not funny. No, it's there's just, no joke to the scene. It's, it's literally just, just a Budweiser commercial in the middle of a movie. Yeah. It's like, have you ever seen that, um, I forget what soap opera it was, where they're just suddenly talking about how great Cheerios are? <laughs> they're like literally like they're just eating cheerios and talking about how they're great and they prevent heart attacks and all this other stuff it's like why is this show about this all of a sudden Ooh, cheerios <laughs> rebel at this hour hey now it's not just for breakfast not to mention i am studying to become a nurse so i feel like i should probably eat healthier and uh since they have whole grain and only one gram of sugar, which is excellent for swimsuit season, you know. Or like that that Hawaii Five O episode where one of the characters uh, sets up his own sandwich shop, but he's literally selling Subway sandwiches, and he talks <laughs> to them about all the great new sandwiches they have on their menu. It's like, <laughs> what is happening to this show? But the best thing about it, they make it any way you want it. Check this one: the sweet onion chicken teriyaki with jalapenos and banana peppers. Now you put that with this, turkey BLT, bam! There's some serious culinary fusion. So how many of these did you order? Five. Five footlongs. It was a good deal. And I got breakfast with tomorrow. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's like, or just even going further with the meta with the Truman Show. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, just like- Who are you talking to? <laughs> Back at the post office, Bo finds out that his girlfriend, Millie, is the daughter of his boss. It happens like this. Hi, Millie. Do I know you? Millie? Frank. Daddy? Daddy? Millie. Millie. Daddy? Daddy? Frank. Frank. Hooper? Hooper? Frank. Daddy? Hooper? Millie? Hooper, I want to see you in my office right now. She explains to Bo that her ex was a mailman, so her dad said no mailman. Back in Frank's office, he punches Bo to the wall, flinging mail and paperwork everywhere. But that explanation doesn't jive for me. No, like, it's it makes n- no sense. You know, if it's, 
I know mailmen. You shouldn't date mailmen. I deal with them every day. That makes sense to me. But not this one guy that you already were with and now not with was a mailman. So don't do that again. Right. Like if, if you're inferring that all mailmen are terrible people, then why are you also working at this post right. office? Yes. Frank hands out demerits, which are like points, but bad. Like that's the punishment he gets for dating the boss's daughter is five demerits on a scale that goes to 90 demerits. So like they had to let us know the full scale so that we know this doesn't fucking matter at all. There's not enough time in the movie to accumulate the other 85 demerits that you need to get fired. If that's even what happens. Did you guys not have demerits in high school? No. 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 That's a Wisconsin thing. I don't know. We had a demerit system. Frank tells the man at the desk to assign Bo to Route 49. Bum, bum, bum. But they forget to make Route 49 different than any other route. It might even be yep. the same route. Yeah, I I didn't get what was happening. The man seems hesitant, implying 49 must be some real big deal. Frank follows him on the route, where he sees Bo leave his mail truck in drive and crash it into a light post on someone's property. That can't be why people fear Route 49, because <laughs> that's a completely preventable accident. Yeah, I think it was just more a reason to give him demerits. Yeah, but he could do that on any route. Mr. Mitchell, Frank's supervisor, visits the post office to evaluate Bo's work ethic. Somehow, over the course of the entire evaluation, Bo manages not to sweep any four-course meals to the floor or set any national monuments on fire. Mitchell seems impressed, and Frank looks disappointed that Bo didn't fuck up. Mitchell heads over to congratulate Bo on a job well done, and he offers all the credit to Frank's supervision. Bo's co-worker Steve tells him that he looked good today. Hey, my star pupil. You were really good, Bo. Today you were no clown. Don't call me that, understand? I'm not a clown. Not anymore. Okay? Yeah, that's what I said. You, you weren't a clown. I said you weren't a clown. I, I, I did not get where this was coming from. Yeah, suddenly he's like turned his back on what was his passion in life. But the guy said he wasn't a clown, and he said, don't call me that. I, I didn't. Frank thanks Bo for what he did today and tells Bo that he has his blessing to continue seeing Millie. Bo seems disappointed about it. Yeah. I, and I also don't understand this flip here because he was, he was trying to get him in trouble. Why is he grateful? I mean, I guess he's grateful because he made him look good. Because he, he gave him credit for our, his achievement. Yeah. But... But then why is Bo sad now? Like, I, I thought the point was that Bo realized that he actually liked being a clown and that the post office was not the job for him. And then there's a weirdly romantic lunch scene between Bo and Steve. Yeah. <laughs> where I like they have a really cute friendship. Yeah. I was just like, it was like when he's trying to eat this, like, with like string cheese or something and it keeps falling over and then, and then Steve the just reaches guy. it over and bites it. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and they And they laugh about it together. At the post office, someone mentions the rabbits again and that they need to do something to take care of them, and Bo offers to handle it. Later, Bo and Steve discuss a plan that Bo has. This was a plan, what's about to happen. We cut to them delivering mail together, but Bo is dressed as a male clown. He's just, he's just dressed as a clown, and he's walking alongside a mailman. A laughing crowd grows behind them as they move down the street. Why? I, I'm not I sure. Why is he? Why is he dressed as a clown here? And why is anybody following them? Why did anyone notice that he's doing this? Someone bothers to call the police on the man delivering mail in a clown costume. He isn't breaking any laws, as far as I can tell. He's just delivering the mail. Yup. 
Who called the police? Karen. <laughs> Children dash through traffic to meet him. Strangers gather on rooftops to throw down streamers and confetti on the passing idiot mailman. He delivers the last bundle of letters into a mailbox, which seems counterintuitive. <laughs> You're the mailman. You're supposed to take these things back to the post office. You don't put them in a box where another mailman comes and gets them. <laughs> Is that not what you do? You don't, you don't take it out of the mailbox and put it in Is that it. what my mailman does? No wonder he's <laughs> done with his job so fast. The delivery route ends in a shopping center where Millie and Frank see Bo in his costume. Bo crashes the mail truck into their car. Yeah. And Frank gets out to lecture Bo on the outfit. He's not mad that you just crashed into the car that he was in. He's mad that you're dressed like a clown on the clock. He fires Bo on the spot for making fun of the postal service. The boss finally says something I can agree with. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is no laughing matter. That should have been a pull quote on the poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bo, the mute clown, speaks to Frank through Steve. He says you can't fire him because he quits and he's about to make his last delivery. What delivery? They open the back of the mail truck and hundreds of rabbits jump out. In case the joke here is confusing, it is spelled out at length by a reporter in a chopper high above the parking lot, inexplicably named Michael Jackson. <laughs> this is Michael Jackson, your in-flight reporter. This is Michael Jackson, your in-flight reporter, bringing you up-to-date news on the spot from Chopper One. We immediately rush to this crazy site. As we understand it, either a radical or fanatic mailman with the Fort Lauderdale Postal Service snapped his satchel, so to speak, dressed himself as a clown, and proceeded to make his deliveries. Let's back up a little. As we get it, one of the deliveries was a small cage that contained a couple of rabbits. Couple meaning two. Now I'm here, seeing with my very own eyes... That couple of rabbits are no longer a twosome. Who somehow knows the whole story of the undeliverable rabbits that must have procreated to fill the truck. Bo hitchhikes to Ringling Brothers Clown College in Sarasota. He is picked up and smiles, grateful, as he loads his things into a car. Amazingly, he doesn't notice until he buckles himself into the passenger seat that his girlfriend is the one who picked him up. In the same car she's been driving for the whole movie that he's crashed into twice now. As they drive away... She is making her kid ride in the trailer with the luggage, even though the car clearly has a back seat. And he was riding in the trailer before they stopped to pick him up. Yep. Because it's funny. After the film ends, we get a quick glimpse of probably the only time someone actually laughed on set. Bo's buddy Steve breaks character and laughs out loud at something, but it isn't clear what. We don't actually hear the joke that makes him laugh. We just see yeah. that he's laughing at it later. But we get a montage of every gag in the entire film. Right. I, I just skip it. Just if you, I thought if it was going to be more outtakes, but right. it's literally no, just no, every punchline. It's punch just line. every gag. So if you just want to watch those, just skip to the end and you're good to go. Yeah, that's exactly my note. You could literally just watch this three-minute montage and see every joke in the movie. <laughs> the end. That's the end of the movie. Our writer-director was Jerry Lewis as Bo Hooper. He's a longtime comedian, singer, and filmmaker. He's half of Martin and Lewis with Dean Martin, and for 44 years he hosted an annual charity telethon to raise money for muscular dystrophy research. Lewis was divorcing his first wife, Patty Lewis, during the production, which I think comes through. He is the titular Cinderfella in Cinderfella. He's the nutty professor in The Nutty Professor, and he's the disorderly orderly in The Disorderly Orderly. My favorite turn, though was his mostly serious role in Scorsese's The King of Comedy, which we have yet to get to. I liked his role in uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Oh, okay. 
uh, he he is no speaking part, but oh, uh, that's great. I'm yeah. already liking it. Uh, but Spencer Tracy's hat flies out the window, and when one of because he's a police officer, and one of the other officers goes to retrieve it, and you just see Jerry Lewis spot the hat on the road, and he gets a smile while he's driving and runs it over. Oh, okay. That's that's his whole part in the movie. Great, that's perfect. He's very popular in France because France likes things that I don't. <laughs> his previous film, the day. <laughs> His previous film, The Day the Clown Cried, is a movie wherein he plays the titular clown whose job is entertaining the children in a Nazi concentration camp on their way into the gas chambers. To date, it has never been released, though rare private screenings have taken place, so rare that a short and incomplete list of people who have seen the film can be found online, and it includes Harry Shearer, who saw it at a personal invitation of Jerry Lewis's in 79 while hardly working was being filmed. He described it as a black velvet painting of Auschwitz. Lewis donated an incomplete print to the Library of Congress under the strict stipulation that it not be screened publicly until June of 2024. So mark your calendars. Lewis has admitted many times that the film was poorly made and personally embarrassing to him, and for context, he allowed hardly working to be seen by a nationwide audience. The Day the Clown Cried has come close to a remake multiple times, including an attempt starring Richard Burton, a Russian co-production that offered the lead to Robin Williams, and a 1994 version starring William Hurt. No adaptation has been discussed since the successful releases of Life is Beautiful and Jacob the Liar. Patton Oswald somehow happened to get the shooting script and staged a live read at Largo with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross of Mr. Show fame. In the lead role, though, was Toby Huss, the strongest man in the world. <laughs> the rest of the cast was rounded out with Paul F. Tompkins, Brian Posehn, Laura Milligan, Scott Ackerman, and Dave Foley. An hour before one of their most high-profile performances, they were hit with a cease and desist from a young producer who had recently optioned the script for Chevy Chase to star in. So instead, they improvised a whole show about the show being canceled because Oswald was secretly desperate for that Chevy Chase version to happen, but it never did. <laughs> Our writer and story came from Michael Janover. He followed this up by writing The Philadelphia Experiment and a couple episodes of The Magical World of Disney. Cinematographer James Pergola was the DP on Nobody's Perfect later this year, as well as Island Claws last year and Smokey and the Bandit 3 in 83, all on the way to his crowning achievement as the DP for 22 episodes of Baywatch Nights. Nice. He also DP'd hundreds of regular Baywatches, but who cares about that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> all, it's all about Baywatch Nights. Yeah. Baywatch didn't have aliens or vampires in it. I'm making a promise right now that someday we will sit down and review the entire series of Baywatch Nights on a podcast called The Night's Watch. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it ends with, and now our watch has ended. Yes. Editor Michael Luciano has lots of impressive credits. Uh, Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Fly to the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, Emperor of the North, The Longest Yard, Empire of the Ants. That's the Heston movie that was recycled into trumbo's world with okay okay yeah yeah, yeah. uh luckily he followed this movie up with stripes before he stopped uh dping films completely susan oliver played claire trent she was norma in butterfield eight but is probably best known as vena the sometimes green alien woman from a couple episodes of star trek the original series she later moved behind the camera directing helming a pair of mash episodes as well as an episode of the spin-off trapper john md Her last appearance was in an episode of the anthology horror series, Freddy's Nightmares, based on the Nightmare on Elm Street series. 
Roger C. Carmel played Robert Trent. He has lots of voice acting credits, including Cyclonus in many iterations of the Transformers animated series and the Transformers animated film, probably best known as another Star Trek favorite, namely Harry Mudd mm-hmm. from Star Trek the original series. Mudd was basically a precursor to Q from The Next Generation, a sort of con man and rival of Captain Kirk's. The character was also resurrected by Discovery, wherein the role was played by Rain Wilson. Deanna Lund played Millie, the girlfriend. She was Valerie Scott in two seasons of Irwin Allen's Land of the Giants, alongside future husband Don Matheson. She's also Kristen's mother in the Christmas horror film Elves. Her daughter, Michelle Matheson, would go on to star in Howling Six, The Freaks. Harold J. Stone played Frank Lucazzi. He was David and Spartacus, or maybe Spartacus and Spartacus. There was a bunch of them. Uh, he also played Dr. Sam Brandt in The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. <laughs> that, that joke took me a minute. <laughs> Steve Franken played Steve Torres. He was Pete Williams in the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, so he's a big fan of this yellow face stuff. He's also Cardinal Colbert in Angels and Demons, and listener Carlo will be excited to hear that he played Professor Graves in Munchie Strikes Back. <laughs> he also has a lot of TV credits, including Walt the Pilot, in MacGyver episode, The Last Stand. Or Last Stand, maybe? But Walt the Pilot, I think, is the one who gets killed as soon as he right, arrives right. at the airport. Buddy Lester played Claude Reed. He was a regular player on Phil Silvers and Barney Miller, but he's likely best known for his collaborations with Jerry Lewis. He's in Ocean's Eleven, The Nutty Professor, Three on a Couch, and he comes back for Lewis's next and final turn in the director's chair, Cracking Up, in 83. We have another one of these. Leonard Stone played Ted Mitchell, he was Charles in Soylent Green and Mr. Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We saw him last as Leo Stern in American Pop, which is practically his name already. As far as Wonka parents remaining, we still need Jack Albertson as Grandpa Joe and Ursula Wright as Mrs. Gloop. But unless our patrons go for Willy Wonka this month, we won't cover anything else she's in because it's mostly German titles. We'll see Grandpa Joe in Dead and Buried and The Fox and the Hound before the end of 1981. Jerry Lester played Slats. He was a warehouse guard in Smokey and the Bandit 2 last year. We really liked that character, and we noticed that it was toward the end of his career, and we didn't recognize much of what he was in, but he was very funny in that. That was his last credit chronologically since this film technically premiered in other regions before before Smokey and the Bandit 2. He was a longtime comedian, singer, and performer, and the brother of Buddy Lester. Billy Barty played Sammy. Holy shit, Billy Barty. Billy Barty's in this movie, and they, they named his character Sammy. Uh, he's completely wasted here. He He's in two shots, I think, and he has no lines. Jerry Lewis literally just used him as a little person extra. It's, it's like it's like we need some, like, uh you know, a little person to be in this movie. Oh, he's like Billy Barty. Sure, sure, whatever, I don't care. Yeah, whatever. Like, like he's like... No, but Billy Barty is someone famous. Yeah, he's he's an important actor. He Five years ago, he was one of the lead characters of John Schlesinger's Day of the Locusts. And you're just casting him as just a random character in the background that I pulled out of a suitcase. That's ridiculous. He's also in Legend, Masters of the Universe, Willow. He's back later this year in Under the Rainbow. But my favorite role will always be Noodles McIntosh from UHF. Britt Leach played the gas station manager... He's Reg in The Great Outdoors. He's Anthony Michael Hall's dad in Weird Science. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I love about that that scene is that for some reason, uh, for people who don't know the movie Weird Science, 
Lisa, their creation, is trying to get Gary to go out to a party and their his parents are protesting. So instead of just tricking, making them agree to letting Gary go, when they leave the scene, Gary's mom just seems like Gary was acting funny. But for some reason, Lisa totally wiped Gary from his father's existence. <laughs> yeah, like, so he doesn't even like, remember. Who's Gary? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. He's also Mr. Sims in Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Mr. Potter in The Last Starfighter. Peggy Mondo played Woman in Restaurant. That's the lady who's getting stuff dragged over her face for interminably long. She was Tessie and Fatso last year. Amy Krug played Michelle Trent. That's the daughter of uh, it's Bo's niece, the one who wants to be a clown president. Uh, we just saw her as young Jane in the flashbacks from Eyes of a Stranger. And that's a wrap on Amy Krug, ladies and gentlemen. That's both of her IMDb credits covered by the Vintage Video Podcast in the span of like four or five episodes. Bob May played clown number three. I don't know which one was clown number three. I don't know how you number these guys. This was his last film, and he played the robot on Lost in Space. <laughs> that's fun. Jack McDermott played a banker. He was Mr. Harper, the father, in Funhouse earlier this year. He was also Win in the final countdown last year. Carrie Hoffman played the waiter with the big menus that are out of season. We both recognize this guy, but not from anything on his IMDb page. He actually seems to have two IMDb pages, one for acting and one for producing that Ray Romano show, Men of a Certain Age, but they're both him. But his primary career has been singing Sinatra songs on stage. Richard O'Berry played Chuck. He's credited as Rick O'Feldman. I, I probably wouldn't use my real name on this either. He'll play a driver in Absence of Malice later this year, and we've already covered his appearance as Charlie in Island Claws with a minisode earlier this year. John DeSanti played newsman number one. We just had him as the murderer in Eyes of a Stranger in our very recent backlog. He's back for Nobody's Perfect and Absence of Malice later this year. Bobby Kosser played newsman number two. He played the film director in Paul Schrader's Hardcore. Sean Cunningham played a little boy, no relation to Sean S. Cunningham of Friday the 13th fame. San D. Pitnick played Dancer. That's the girl that Jerry Lewis takes away from her dance partner to spin around on the floor with. Lewis was divorcing his first wife, Patty, during the production. And Sandy Pitnick and Jerry Lewis met on the set and were married three years later. And they were married all the way until his passing in 2017. Christine Page played newlywed at park. I don't remember a newlywed at the park. Yeah. Maybe it's part of that 20 minutes that got cut out. Oh, probably. Uh, she played the woman in the gun range at the beginning of the island, who worked mostly on Florida productions but had a long career in the local comedy scene. She retired from the entertainment industry on account of her struggles with muscular dystrophy, a cause which Jerry Lewis famously championed for his entire career. Uh, I want to bring up uh, Alex Hentloff who played uh, the glasses guy that he got sneezed in the face. Oh, okay. Um, I only recognized him from his scene from Star Trek Four. He's the glass company guy that they con into giving with by giving him the formula for transparent aluminum. Oh, okay. And, and he's like, hello, the whole hello computer scene. <laughs> but when, when they're trying to like entice him with like that he he would be he'll be rich by this invention. His, his favorite, my favorite line is: with, "This woman comes in to ask him a question. He goes, not now, Madeline.' <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was it. Yeah. All right, that's good. Um, this movie is insufferable. It's a huge thumbs down from me. Yeah, I hated it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I checked out uh during the scene in the japanese restaurant 
And literally one of my notes is like, like it's like he steals a blimp. I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on in this whole movie. I, I warned you. I told you to watch it and fast forward. I am mildly curious what the 22 minutes looks like that came out of it. If it's just another montage of 17 more jobs. With that one. I'm not going to find it. I'm not seeking it out. I'm just curious what, if, if anybody knows they, what's in that <laughs> section. What 20 minutes they found disposable of yeah. considering what they left if in this, the film. If this made the cut, <laughs> what came out of it? Although I know that the... um. The whole like five minute intro montage of him uh, being in other movies was not in the European cut, so that makes up some of the time. Um, <laughs> but still, I don't, I don't get it. Wait, if it was not, does that mean more than twenty five minutes? I guess, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, this movie could have been bordering on two hours. Ugh. I hope that it's literally just one twenty two minute shot of him sneezing on a guy's glasses over and over again. <laughs> Might, and then like a newlywed in a park for one frame <laughs> well, and, and so many of like the gangs involve him knocking stuff over but it's yeah. so obvious that he's just really flailing yeah to he's, knock he's, stuff over. he's not selling the the pratfalls at all Mm-mm. and half the time it's like he falls into a corner and then just stuff is dumped on him over and over and over again yeah. and it's like clearly he didn't do that like he didn't cause what's happening to him right now it's just getting dumped on him I, I, it, it <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even really know. Like, I'm trying to think of, of some interesting moment. I guess the only part of the movie that I actually thought was like, this is okay. Psych gags is the, the when he's trying to put the mail in the mailbox, but the mailbox keeps malfunctioning. Right. Cause but, it's like a puppet mailbox. Yeah. But, but that's also a scene where the, his coworker, Steve is just laughing. Like, you can hear him laughing. And I was like, why are there so many scenes of other characters laughing at Bo? Because they didn't have the budget wanted, to fix it. They wanted a diegetic <laughs> laugh track so that we would know where to laugh. It's like, well, they're laughing. So I guess I should. So I must be objectively wrong for not laughing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to watch. Um, it's hardly watchable. I think um, that he probably was funny at some point in his career. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think that he he is a complete joke the whole way through his career. But if you started here, there's no way anybody found this funny that this was their first Jerry Lewis movie. He he needs a straight man, and there's no straight man in this movie. Yeah, like there there's no one to ground this movie. And and make make you appreciate, you know, it, it's you know it's a, a you know Lewis and Martin, yeah. You know, it, that that's the whole thing. Laurel and Hardy, Lewis and Martin. It's you you gotta have somebody else who is is taking the brunt or having to correct what you are doing, right? Uh, and and because he just does things and then there's no consequences. Yeah, we just cut to the next scene anytime they don't know what to do next. Because you can't have consequences because there's no one else in the scene. Right. So he like he opens up a porthole and a woman gets sprayed with water. It's like, okay, is that his fault? I think no. But why is it there? Why does it exist? And what happened immediately after this? Yeah, I guess he was fired for opening up a porthole at first, I was like, 
is this whole fucking store underwater? And he opened a window on the bottom floor of a right. ship. Like what? What is happening here? But yeah, I I couldn't follow the plot for a lot of it. Um, but honestly, he just makes me angry. Like he's so not funny that it, that I started to hate him over the course of the movie. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, I just like, I I this is the person you're I'm supposed to sympathize with, and I I actively hate this person. Like I hate the actor, not even just the character. I hated Jerry Lewis by the end of the movie. Because it was so not funny that I was like, offended that he thought I would think this was funny. Or that anyone would. Sorry, Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't okay. get that Germany's either. used to being wrong. I don't get Germany liking it. <laughs> I don't get a test audience going nuts for it unless they were like heavily intoxicated by the production team. Uh, that a, a test audience of old Hollywood distributors going, I remember Jerry Lewis. Oh my God, look how racist this guy is. This is amazing. I love it. Yeah. Like that's exactly how I saw that whole scene going down. But then it made $24 million in the US. So America thought it was great too. I I don't don't know how to rationalize it. Like people protested you, you know, fiendish plot and they went out in droves to catch this a second and third time. Well, you, you know what though? I... I I honestly chalk it up to people going, "Oh, Jerry Lewis's first film in ten years." Maybe that that has to be it. A- yeah. And so I have to go see Jerry Lewis's first film in ten years. It's got to be great. He's been waiting ten years to make this movie. <sighs> anyway, uh, thumbs down. Three yep. three thumbs way down. Uh, where's this going, letterboxed? Uh, I have this one at number thirty-seven out of thirty-seven for the year. <laughs> No apologies. Good. It's Good. I will never ever watch this movie again. I there are things about whatever's above it, Scream and um what else is above it? Home Sweet Home. I, well, every movie is above it, but there's stuff yeah. about those movies that I would rather watch than this thing. Yeah. Uh I don't have it quite so far down. Um I have it at number 36 out of 37. <laughs> What's below it? Scream. Oh. I I I can't I just can't. But it, but like, I don't know, cloud pirate things. I don't know. The, a mist comes in and there's like pirates. Yeah, I guess. No, that's <laughs> the fog. You're confused. Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> there was a painting and then a baker and a candlestick baker. And all of those things are great compared to Whoa. this. <laughs> Let's not go crazy here. Great. Identifiable. <laughs> Yeah, and and Home Sweet Home is above it only because of electric guitar death. <laughs> um, I too have this in thirty sixth. Uh, it's under Scream, but it's just above All Night Long, which is still on the bottom of my list. <laughs> because All Night Long was a movie with competent cast members, mm-hmm. and the screenwriter thought that I would watch that movie and be on team gene hackman the whole time (laughs) and that makes me angry but it doesn't make you as angry as jerry lewis jerry lewis is just an idiot he's not mean he's not he's not trying to be mean to me i i don't know he might be maybe he is i don't know but either way my problem my bottom movies will always be a movie where i am asked to sympathize with a character who I fucking hated the whole time. <laughs> and I honestly don't think that Jerry Lewis cares if I sympathize with this character. It's just like, here's a dumb idiot. Look what he did all day. But all night long, it was like, 
Come on, Gene Hackman's a good guy, right? He just told her to, to tell her husband who saved her from a fire to go fuck himself so that he can cheat on his wife with her. It's like, no. No, I don't accept these terms. Bad movie. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> They're both bad. They're both bad in different ways, you know? I don't agree that it's like I don't apples di- I, and bad movies. I, I, I don't disagree <laughs> that they're not both bad. I, I I just I love your passion for against all night long. <laughs> I fucking hated it. I really did. I was so angry by the end. Um that Okay, that's how I feel about nothing personal. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's everything for Hardly Working. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, do not forget to subscribe. I cannot stress this enough. If you forget... S- something bad's gonna happen i don't even know what i don't want to get too specific here because that's opening myself up to legal action but something something awful is gonna happen I if you don't subscribe you shouldn't deviate <laughs> from the script let's just <laughs> anyway thank you so much for listening i hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing excalibur Woo! which imdb <laughs> describes like so merlin the magician helps arthur pendragon unite the britons around the round table of camelot even as dark forces conspire to tear it apart. We leave you now with a trailer for Excalibur. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and in despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power. Excalibur. taken root in the present. It is done. Orion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and great. And I will marry! Don't you know me, Merlin? Because I'm a creature like you. Their magic is Merlin. Are you just a dream? To some. A nightmare to others! Their king is Arthur. You are my husband. I must be king first. Their power is Excalibur. I swear eternal fate to our king. Sir Lancelot, you will be my champion. Which is that? Greatest quality of knighthood. True. We're high evil then. <laughs> Where you never expected. I protest my innocence. Were I not king, I would make you pay with your life. <laughs> A world of wizards, kings, warriors, queens, swords, sorcery, and desire. Forged of splendor and magic, where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, sword of power. 
Sword of Kings.